Welcome to the Mosavar Romani Center for Business and Government at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more information on events, news, and research, visit www.mrcbg.org. Okay, so um, I'm Richard Zeckhauser. I'm a professor here. Um, I know a number of you. It's nice to have friends because then they show up at your seminars. Though Pow, I know, would only have come if we gave free food. Um, but I still appreciate it, Pow. Um, my colleague here is Alex Wagner. Alex got a PhD here um, how many years ago? 13 years ago. 13 years ago. He's now a uh, full professor of finance at the uh, University of Zurich. If any of you are interested in becoming professors of finance, um, I urge you to go to the University of Zurich. They pay very well. They have a nice job. They have a very good department. And our uh, former colleague, David Yannick is also at uh, Zurich. Um, we did a, we've done a variety of studies of what happened to the stock market uh, right after Donald Trump was elected. It was an idea. One of the things that people do in finance a lot is they do event studies. They see what there's an event and they see what happens before and after the event. Um, but few of the events are an earthquake equivalent to what happened when Donald Trump was elected. And there were uh, two good reasons why this was an earthquake and should have been expected to shake the stock market a lot. One of them was that uh, Donald Trump was uh, the underdog. Uh, by the way, he was much more of an underdog um, in places where financial markets uh, are heavily involved than in places where they aren't. I mean, in New York City, if you run around New York City, or Boston just before the election, you would have assumed that Hillary Clinton had a 90% chance of getting elected. 538 gave her, uh, her a 70% chance of getting elected. But if people just talk to other people to get a feel for what the outcome likely to be, um, Trump had virtually uh, no chance of being elected. There were a number of studies that were done before the election that uh, projected what would happen if uh, Trump were elected. Um, generally what they did is they looked on days when there was unfavorable news for Hillary, such as Mr. Comey's going and making the announcement about you know, Hillary's emails and the like, and um, they saw what happened to the stock market. And when Hillary's odds of winning went up, the stock market went up. And when Hillary's odds of winning went down, the stock market went down. So the general expectation, if you had read the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, was Hillary gets elected, um, the stock market will go up a little bit because she's likely to be elected. If Hillary loses, if Trump gets elected, uh, the stock market will go down um, about 5%. Um, this is, uh, we're not talking about what's going to happen in the next year. As you all know, the stock market did very well in 2017, hasn't done so well in 2018. We're talking about what's going to happen in the days immediately after the election, where we're not going to know anything new about the economy. We're not even going to know very much about what Donald Trump is going to do. I mean, the day after you're elected, um, you make a speech, you congratulate your opponent, uh, you say everything is going to be great in America, so on and so forth. So I'm going to start with, by the way, we're going to do a tag team match here. I'm going to talk at the beginning, then Alex is going to talk, and then Alex, then I'm going to talk at um, the end. Uh, some of you are interested in behavioral decisions. 
If you're interested in behavioral decision, which has been a, or behavioral economics or behavioral finance, which has been a big theme of um, the last 30 or 40 years in uh, economics and finance research, uh, this is an ideal uh, place to study it in finance. Because in most areas of behavioral decision, there are many, many factors that are at play. But in finance, there's lots of data. There are millions of really smart people who are worrying about what's you know, going to happen. And you tend to have a unidimensional utility function. I want to maximize the amount of money that I'm going to have. And there's probably nothing that's more widely studied than financial markets. Indeed, if you're a smart Harvard undergraduate, you're graduating at the top of your class, majoring in math or physics or uh, statistics, you know, you can get a really good job on Wall Street where your job is to find a place where you can make a quarter of 1% extra in the stock market in the next month. Because since you're going to be involving with large amounts of money, you're, it's going to be a large amount of money for your firm. So, you know, we would expect the stock market to do fairly well. Um, there's lots of the principal debate in finance over, you know, uh, many decades has been whether markets are effectively efficient. And the father of the efficient markets hypothesis, now I would sort of say, is Gene Fama, a man who won the Nobel Prize. And probably a leading uh, figure on the other side is Dick Thaler, who won the Nobel Prize in economics last year, who worries about behavioral finance. So this is sort of where people are thinking about it. So some of you may be much more interested in social policy. If you're interested in social policy, the, you know, the big idea now the, is that you nudge people to do things that they wouldn't normally get right. But you would think that the stock market would get things more right. By the way, if 50% of us are very irrational and just buy in the stock market in emotion, but the other 50% of us are highly rational and use our money to arbitrage the market back into equilibrium, the market will look as though it's perfect. So we're not looking at what individual players are doing. We're looking about what aggregate prices are doing. Now, some of you may have seen a recent story um, about a Mr. Barron who called Forbes magazine to say that Donald Trump was richer than he was. Mr. Barron turning out to be Donald Trump. Um, a guy who uh, wrote the original paper on signaling was a former faculty member here named Mike Spence, who also won the Nobel Prize. And he talks about signaling. And uh, Donald Trump has many virtues and many failings, uh, but he's a pretty good signaler. So if you want to know whether he's rich, I urge you to look. This is a picture of our protagonist. And um, uh, you know, uh, I actually tried to take the same picture with my wife and my kids and my grandchildren, <laughs> but we couldn't find the lion. So, um, but I thought that that was a pretty terrific picture. That has absolutely nothing to do with our talk. Okay, okay. So the key point of the talk is that after um, Trump's surprise win, there were. Uh, significant uh, action in the returns of various assets. You all know, well, you may not all know, but what I can show you in a minute is that the stock market gyrated over the night of the, when the election results were coming in. And we all know what happened to the aggregate stock market. But one of the things that's really interesting is um, immediately after Trump was elected, there was very substantial movement in the prices of individual stocks. 
So basically, I, you know, I'm an investor. I looked around the room and I said, oh, I think that Scott Industries, Scott's the uh, executive director of our, of our thing, is going to do very well because he basically does things that Trump's policies are going to uh, favor. And Elizabeth Industries, the lady sitting next to him with a red uh, shirt, is going to do poorly because she does things that Trump is basically opposed to. So Scott might be a firm that uh, pays a lot of taxes. Um, Elizabeth, who actually is from Europe, may have a large degree of foreign involvement. Uh, Trump you know, stated frequently, I'm going to make America great again. These people aren't going to be exporting all this stuff to me, so on and so forth. You would have expected that the day after Trump got elected, or the few days after Trump got elected, Scott would do Scott, Scott stock, was expecting to continue to pay high taxes under Hillary, was going to look for a nice tax reduction. Elizabeth, who imports lots of stuff from Europe, was going to expect to have a hard time. Okay. Uh, the first day, the stock moves were mostly in the right direction. What I mean by the right direction is we looked <coughs> 10 days down the road and we saw where stocks were. And the other thing that we saw is that after 10 days, there wasn't much movement. I mean, what happened on the first day didn't predict anything as to what was going to happen on the 10th day. So immediately, people knew it was going to be good for Scott and bad for Elizabeth. What was interesting is that the first day, although Scott's stock went like this, it continued to go up until basically it leveled off on the 10th day. And Elizabeth's stock, which was here, went down on a, this on a relative basis and then continued to drift down up through 10 days. So the stock market did a good job of knowing the overall direction of things, which is basically guessing who Trump is going to be good for and who Trump is going to be bad for. But it didn't do a good job of going um, you know, far enough in that uh, direction. And we're going to try and explain why that was. So we're going to talk about three areas. Um, we're going to talk about taxes. You all know Trump was expected to cut taxes. He did cut taxes. You all know about trade. Um, we still don't know what's going to uh, happen with uh, you know, a variety of uh, trade packs, but you know, President Trump continues to talk you know, in sort of hostile ways, and he has slapped tariffs on Chinese goods, and who knows what's ultimately going to happen there. And then we're going to talk about an area which I think is interesting. We're going to talk about both the environment. Otherwise, uh, Trump was a little bit of the uh, Reagan era, get the government off the people's backs. I'm going to bring back the coal industry, uh, which seems to be an unlikely situation, no matter what happens with environmental policy. But my environmental policies are going to be um, more friendly to industry than uh, they had been before. And then we're going to look that uh, within each industry, so that within the steel industry, within the petroleum industry, within the high-tech industry, there are some firms that are regarded as more environmentally responsible than others, and we're going to see how they did. Now, if you think that Trump is going to be um, an environmental desperado, you would think that these environmentally responsible firms would do worse. But in fact, it is true Dirty industries did better after Trump was elected, but environmentally responsible firms within each industry actually did better, which might seem to be puzzling. And my guess is that if we asked 
you know, a dozen environmentalists and a dozen finance professors, they would have guessed the wrong uh, way. So we're going to show that these are an important component of um, firm value, and they affected prices at different speeds. Our basic theme is that if something is easy to discern, um, that the market will get it right quickly. If it's hard to discern, it will take the market a longer time to get it right. So it's a little bit, you know, many of you are students, you know, it's kind of hard to uh, understand numerical analysis. It's kind of easy to understand introductory micro. So it takes you a long time to master numerical analysis. Um, and we're going to come back to the actual, um, as you know, in um, tax reform actually passed in December. And we're going to see what happened actually with the accurate um, uh, you know, tax reform. And then we're going to talk, talk about what investors can learn from episodes like these. Now, I presume that there are at least uh, two people in this room who came here principally to learn how they can make more money. <laughs> and the best way to make more money is to study hard in your Kennedy School courses. Nothing that we can say is going to help you today. Okay. So here's you know, uh, some uh, images after the election. Trump wins. What does it mean? So I made the argument before that there was substantial repricing, not in the aggregate market, but Scott's firm doing well, Elizabeth's firm doing poorly after the election. I should have phrased it the other way. Elizabeth is a, a senior fellow here, and I should have been nice to our visitor. So I, I, I apologize. <laughs> um, OK, so this is what happened. Right. This is what happened the night of the election. And you'll notice, we already knew that they were neck and neck in Florida, and then it becomes increasingly clear that Trump is going to win. And the stock market actually falls 4.9% over, over the course of the night. And we think of this as sort of a hurting phenomenon. Oh my god, the market's going down. I better sell. You better sell. Everybody is selling. Everybody knows Trump's going to get elected get elected, it's going to be terrible for the country. And then somehow, and I think that this is remarkable, in the middle of the night, the stock market starts turning around. And everybody sort of says, eh, maybe Trump won't be bad for the economy. Maybe he won't be bad for corporate profits. Maybe he'll be good for that. And the stock market actually ended up 1.4% ahead on the next day. So it's really, um, we think of this as panic people running to the exits, and then people rushing back in. Let me make one other point about this, which um, is not, we don't have a, I don't have a slide for it. But if you look at the Japanese market at the same time, it almost exactly reproduces what the American market was doing. So it, went, it, it fell, and then it rose, with the timing being almost exact. Well, that's, it's not surprising it takes you know, the news of where the American stock market is you know, a thousandth of a second to get to Tokyo. So that's not surprising. But the thing that is surprising is if Trump was really going to be great for America and was going to stop importing lots of things, one of the things that we import the most of is Japanese cars. So you might have thought that if Tokyo was really paying attention both to Trump's policies and to how the American stock market was re reacting, that it would have had the opposite reaction. But at least investors in Japan 
or Americans investing in Japan or people in uh, you know, China or Britain or any other place else investing in Japan thought that Japan was going to do the same, had the same experience as the United States. So it was a uh, Trump victory seemed inevitable. The stock market fell 900 points. Um, there was basically no news beyond Tuesday night. I mean, the big news was Trump won. Um, there were no, you know, the, the control of the Senate and the House weren't in, um, in doubt. Um, and the next day, uh, the stock market went, you know, the, the stock market went up a further 1.4%. So evidently we thought Trump was going to be good for the stock market, and then we thought Trump was going to be good for the stock market, but the first day we didn't think it quite as much as we did um, before. Okay, so this is the idea of many other assets were affected. I mean, it's no surprise that the Mexican peso, I mean, don't forget Trump, I'm going to renegotiate the North American Free Trade Act, which had been very beneficial for Mexico. The Mexican peso fell 11%. Uh, VIX futures, these are, VIX is the volatility of stock markets. We're going to be talking about that a reasonable amount. Um, they fell. Um, the U.S. stock market was, this is a 10-day return, the 10-day return of, there was big movements in the first 10 days after Trump was elected. He didn't say anything the first 10 days after he was elected, other than I'm going to be great for America. That was <laughs> the, his principal theme. Um, but the interesting thing is that if you look at the first day, in each case, the return on November 9th, there was no, there was no significant news, news. But in each one of these things, the movement was in the same direction, but substantially less than what had happened via 10 days. So it was sort of an underreaction. You know, we didn't absorb all the information at once. And you can have a variety of theories as to why um, that's the case. Now, we're going to worry about a lot about repricing. This is the, what we call the interquartile range of stocks. That's you take the stock of the 75th percentile, how much it moved, and the 25th percentile, how much it moved, and you look at the gap between them. And you'll sort of see, here's the, you know, the date of the Trump election, and it really reached an incredibly high ratio. This other little um, graph here <coughs> is something that we're going to focus on. It's the spread ratio. Um, I apologize for slight technicality, but um, to some extent, stocks move more when volatility in the stock market is higher. So the VIX is the amount of volatility in the stock market, and we divide the interquartile range by the level of the VIX to get what we call the spread ratio, and that's what we're going to do. That's how much did stocks move around relative to how much you would expect them to move around. Okay, so now, this, these, this is the histogram since uh, 2000 of how much, um, how great the spread ratio was. And you'll notice that November 9th was one of the highest days in the entire period from November to from uh, January 1st, 2000 uh, to that day. Otherwise, this is the idea of not how much the stock market moved, but Scott going up and Elizabeth going down. So the magnet. So basically, the principal lesson that we take from the stock, Trump stock market is not whether the stock market went up or the stock market went down, but it was really good for these stocks, and 
it was much less good for those stocks. And by the way, not only that, November 10th and November 11th were also big days of the spread ratio. And the other thing that's sort of surprising here is that all of these days moved in the same direction. So the first day, Scott went here and Elizabeth went here. Second day, Scott went here and Elizabeth went here. Third day, Scott went here and Elizabeth went there. And the contributions were this, these were really big spread days, almost, you know, unprecedented, not unprecedented, but, you know, the, you know a one in a thousand day since, uh, you know, uh, January 1st, 2000. So it was pretty important. Okay, what should you take away from part one? Um, yes, sir. Well, the outliers, I mean, high tax firms were. I mean, know, what were the events? You can identify events that caused those outlying. Oh, the ones that we took, those, well, the ones that we identified were the 9th, 10th, and 11th of November. Yeah, other other outlying, what, what were the other outlying? What were they? So, for example, um, after Brexit, you would see very large requests even in the American market as well. Uh, you would have events like when the. Um, the Fed on the, on, the, on the 3rd of January 2001 announced suddenly they're going to cut rates that affects the economy very widely. But it's actually interesting. We were looking at this this morning. There are some days, uh, one of our big spread days was a day where there was heterogeneous news, which basically means good things for you, bad things for the guy next to you, and like that. So you can expect that. With Brexit, there will be a big event. You can expect a big spread ratio. You can expect this. You can expect the Fed making an announcement will be bigger. Sometimes they can't do it. It's a little bit like you're familiar with in October 1988, the stock market dropped 20% a day. Um, and you know people are trying to sort of say there was some butterfly that batted its wings in the Brazilian jungle, but we don't know um, what happened on that day. So I think the way I think of it is the stock market sort of has a mind of its own. And 90% of the time, it's like a good child, and it behaves reasonably according to things that you can understand. And every once in a while, it doesn't behave in that particular way. And then there are some massive events which don't produce a big spread ratio. So you could think of something like 9-1-1, which may be one of the you know, more salient events in recent American history. But it wasn't clear that that was good for these firms and bad for those firms. So, you know, you're not going to get a good spread ratio. And even if you could sort of say, well, that's going to be good for defense firms and not good for domestic firms, but that's not enough of affecting every individual firm within the economy. So the Trump thing was every individual firm. Okay, um, intense repricing took place right after the election. Um, but this doesn't tell us whether, although I've already told you this, whether the direction of the repricing was correct. It was correct. And what happens on the days that follow the massive repricing? So I'm going to let Alex talk for now. Uh, this is the harder part of the talk. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks very much. I'm, I'm going to stand up because it'll last me a little bit more. Uh, we're thinking it's great to be uh, here. It's been actually quite a few years since I've been in this room. Uh, I never took a class here myself, but uh, I've attended a few events. So it's great to talk to you about this. Thanks for the invitation and for the opportunity. And you did something uh, very good there, uh, sir. You, you asked a question, which I encourage everybody to do uh, as, we, as we go along. I'm happy to take questions, although there will be time to, 
ask some questions afterwards. So Richard already gave away a little bit of the uh, answer to the question I'm going to ask you right now, but still I'm going to get a little bit of a sense uh, for that. Suppose you have two stocks that you watched on the first day after the election. Uh, one stock, let's say Staples. Uh, Staples went up 5 5.5% in the day after the election. And there's another stock, uh, let's take AES Energy, one of the largest energy companies in the US, that went down 3.5% on the day after the election, November 9, 2016. Now, so you're wondering, well, should I buy more of Staples? It just went up 5.5%. You, you weren't ready to get in the first day, but you did see the first day. Or which would be, you know, continuing buying stuff that went up, called momentum in finance speak. Or you say, oh, hang on, I'm gonna buy the dip. That's another rule of thumb in, uh, on, on, the, on Wall Street, right? Buy the dip, be a contrarian, uh, buy AES Energy. Richard already gave the answer to this sort of, but I, I want to give you another chance to think about this. So. I've been living in Switzerland now for 13 years, and in Switzerland, we vote on everything, or the Swiss vote on everything. It's direct democracy. So I, I'm, I'm going to take a vote here. And there's only one, or uh, there's only two possibilities either buy Staples or buy AES Energy. So do you want to buy the stock that went up the first day? Yes, no. Three, four people. Do you want to buy the stock that went down the first day? Uh, it's about the same, bit more, maybe one or two people more. The, the, the others are still undecided. <coughs> you want to buy treasuries or, or something else. Well, what happened is that actually Staples went up another 6% on the next day. And AES Energy went down another 4.5% the following day. And those not, are not just two random examples. It's what happened in, on the grand scale on the day after the election. So I want to illustrate this with this graph here. We have the, uh, this plus about 3,000 of the most liquid stocks in the US, the Russell 3000 index. Each point is, is a stock. This is the return on November 9th. This is the return on November 10th. Usually, this is basically a flat line. Because in an efficient market, you're not supposed to be able to predict what happens on the next day <coughs> with what happened today. Right? That's the basic idea. This was very unusual. There was pretty steep upward sloping line. You might still think, oh, it's messy, but no. To the finest person, this is uh, awesome. And, and to describe how awesome it is, here's another of those histograms. So this plots the 4,276 trading days in this century. This sounds wonderful. This is the 21st century. In this century, uh, against the one day of the uh, Trump election, no, from November 9th to November 10th, we get a rank for the correlation. Don't worry exactly about what that is. It's a number that says how strong is the return continuation from one day to the next of 0.45, which is very, very big compared to what we usually observe. It's a very unusual. Yeah. Towards the end of my talk, uh, our talk, we're going to come back to the question: In general, do we find such a do we find such a relation between big thing happening on one day, and then on the next day, momentum of this sort, and the short answer is going to be no but. Okay, but we'll, we'll come back to that later. For now, we're sticking with the Trump election. Very strong repricing. This is what Richard 
showed and very strong momentum on the next day. Yeah. So this is significant at any level you want to look at. Uh, the question is what do we compare to? Do we compare it to zero or do we actually need to compare it to slightly negative amount? In this case, <coughs> the typical empirical uh, thing is a 0.02 uh, rank or a correlation, but the significance is going to blow your mind. So this was the first day after the election. On the following days, we find another 99th percentile historical uh, case of momentum from the second to the third day, again from the third, second, uh, from the third to the fourth day, and then reversal hits. We, we, we can show this in the graph. This looks a little bit funky, so let me just take a minute uh, to describe this. The top graph here is a simplified version of the graph I just showed you in the previous slide. This is what we call a bin scatter plot. Don't worry about exactly what that is. It basically shows return on day one on the bottom, return on day two, here the vertical axis, strong positive relationship. Then we look at what happened on the first two days combined, and then what happened on the third day. You're not supposed to be able to predict what happens on the third day after event by looking at what happened on the first two days. That's, that's totally contrary to what the fusion markets would do, but still define a very strong positive relationship. You go through nine days, what you see, if you look at the red line, this red line has three upward slopes, then it suddenly flips. But every time, the absolute slope gets a little bit less. So uh, maybe you can feel what's going on here. The market is basically adjusting to a new equilibrium. It's proceeding in the same direction for a number of days, then thinking, oops, we went too far, has to backtrack a little bit, go a little bit again, and find its balance. That's what went on here. And it's just a great event to study how markets adjust to price. Right? That's why uh, I've, we've written now four papers on <coughs> this topic. And from different angles, um, one can say what one wants from uh, about the politics <coughs> of what's going on here. But in terms of understanding how markets operate, how they adjust to new information, it's a really interesting uh, set of events. Okay, so what's the takeaway here? The takeaway is, uh, so first of all, the first day did have a lot of information already. I forgot to say that. For 66% of the stocks, even though the level the market reached wasn't right, the direction was right. I want to let that sink in for a, for a minute because it's quite amazing when you compare it to the mayhem that happened overnight. And Richard showed you this graph. Overnight, the market went down and then it went up again. It seemed really totally confusing. But still, on the first day, for two-thirds of the firms, stock market participants had actually figured out whether this stock was ultimately going to do well or not so well under the new administration. It's quite a feat. You have this huge upset. Very few people have predicted that Trump would actually win. He did win. Figuring out his policies wasn't so easy. The market did a reasonably good job in the direction, but not in the So I've talked about all this. Now, I 
I'm going to branch out in two directions in the, in the next uh, few minutes. One is, well, why do we observe this? Why doesn't the market get it right away? In a time when we have algorithms, we have almost artificial intelligence like uh, uh, machines acting on the market, why does it still take a few days to figure this out? <coughs> and then the other question is, well, which firms actually did benefit and why did they benefit? The first question, what explains this pattern is both academically and practically of interest, but I, I can only scratch the surface here in this brief talk and I'm happy to, to dive deeper. The other one is a little bit more intuitive. So let's, let's first talk about why does it take some time for things to get processed? Well, first of all, you, you could say, oh, hang on, you're showing us a price development from one day to the next. Isn't that just new news coming in? And one reason why there's moves in the market prices is because the market has new information. The cool thing about this event from an academic perspective is, no, there was not really much new information. We have a new president-elect. But it's not, there was no additional news coming in about what exactly the tax cut would look like or what policies would be pursued that had been announced or not announced. There was really mostly congratulatory phone calls uh, coming into the White House and then some echo press reports about it. So not much new news. But the market did take some time to process information. And to give you a flavor of how we proceed in tracing out this um, uh, information processing, consider two firms. One is covered by lots of analysts, so financial analysts who are trying to figure out what <coughs> is going to happen in a firm in the future and what the values that firm is. And another firm that is not followed by a lot of financial analysts. I think it's intuitive to expect that firms that have, let's say, 30 very smart financial analysts from large financial institutions following that company and figuring out, okay, how are potential tax cuts going to feed through the bottom line of that firm? For that firm, analysts and therefore investors are going to be faster in responding to any news that comes in. Whereas for an obscure firm that is covered by two guys, and those two guys happen to be on vacation, let's say, not much is going to happen in the first two days until some investor actually digs into that 10K report and figures out what that election is going to mean for this company. This sort of uh, differences among firms, firms with lots of analysts and firms with few analysts actually shows up in the data. So I'm not going to confuse you with uh, statistics here, though I appreciate the question of, of statistical significance. You can read the papers uh, that we have. I can tell you this pattern I showed you for momentum from one day to the next is much less pronounced for firms that have a lot of analysts and is much more pronounced for firms that have little analysts. And to us as, as scholars, that's sort of exciting because it supports <coughs> theories about delayed information processing. Actually, right out of Harvard, uh, 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 Jeremy Stein from the Econ Department, uh, and Harrison Tong, who is at uh, Yale of Business, no, now he's at Columbia, sorry, he's at Columbia. They had this paper in 1999 that developed this idea of analysts helping with information 
So you know, I have a bunch of slides behind this, but I'm not actually going to show you them. So you can, uh, you can check out the, the papers. Uh, we find that momentum is more pronounced for firms where there are few analysts, which is what I just said to you. And then there's a number of other dimensions in which firms differ. For example, one more paper I can resist this behavioral crowd here. We have a way of identifying firms where investors are arguably more overconfident. I would need more time to explain how we do that. I can do that in the Q&A. Trust me, for the moment, we have a way of identifying such firms. In, if you're overconfident as an investor, you trust your own ideas too much, and you update too slowly to new information that comes in. That's the basic idea. It's in firms held by uh, where, where overconfidence is supposedly high. That's where it took longer to get to the new Right, because people are just not willing to update as quickly as they should. We can provide some evidence of that. Overall, um, the, the, the basic story here is that the market uh, suffered from, over, uh, from underreaction in uh, getting to the right level. But still, the direction was right. Other theories, uh, also to, to give you the big picture, there are theories out there which say after such a big event, you'll usually see immediate reversal. So people run off in the completely wrong direction <coughs> because they're confused, and then they need to figure it out and reverse in the other direction. That's not what we saw in this event. OK. <coughs> All right, so what, what have we established, established so far? We've established very large action in the stock market, repricing, very large momentum from one day to the next, and then another day to the next, and then we had to reverse and we came to equilibrium. We haven't really talked about in detail, though Richard has alluded to it, which firms would benefit from a Trump election. I mean, I gave you two example firms, Staples and AES. One benefited, one got hurt. But what is the general pattern? <coughs> which, which firms would benefit from the new administration and which would get hurt? So let's talk about that. This is the topic of taxes, trade, and environmental responsibility. So on the tax dimension, it's pretty clear what you, what you would expect. Um, so these three uh, can be ordered in decreasing order of clarity of what one would expect. President Trump getting elected with a Republican Congress is a good shot at corporate tax cuts. I'm not talking about personal taxes. I'm talking about uh, corporate taxes here. And uh, theory has a very clear prediction what that means for firms. Right? You would expect when corporate taxes are lower, firm value increases because more profits remain available for distribution to shareholders. The Trump uh, election is, I mean, you can, you can think about this politically, uh, what you want from uh, about this tax cut, of course, but in terms of identifying whether taxes actually play a role for firm value, this is a clean event study. Right? A surprising change in expected tax policy. Very few people had expected this election to come out the way it did. 
So now shift in a regime. Does the market understand that and how does it price it? We would expect high tax from Spain. Such tax implications for firm value are impossible to study usually. First of all, we have not had a corporate tax reform of this magnitude since 1986 in the US. And second, if there is a change <coughs> in taxes, it's usually pre-announced and many, many uh, rounds of legislation and so on uh, surround. So here we have a big surprise. Uh, how does that play out? Well, um, so there's some technical things about advantages and disadvantages of that. Let me tell you uh, how one does that. Uh, I know we have a, a very diverse group of people here, so let me try to convey what the method here is. We can collect for each stock, let's say these largest 3,000 US stocks, we can see how the stock price reacted from one day to the other. That's the easy part. And then, that's the dependent variable. That's what we're trying to explain. And then there are certain things that explain that stock price move. One of those things is the tax position of the firm. So for every firm, you can go online and look <coughs> in their disclosure statements what kind of taxes they've paid in the past. You can look at their cash taxes paid. You can look at their GAAP taxes paid. So these are different sorts of tax rates you can compute. But basically, you can find out how much they would benefit from a tax cut going forward. So Fortunately, one doesn't have to do that uh, by hand. Uh, there's, there's, there's ways of automating that. So we get that data, and we look at how it explains the stock price reaction. And it turns out to do pretty well, as I'll show you in a picture right now. So the idea here is that the market basically acts as a policy suit. It, it kind of help, helps us understand what the expectations of the stock market are about what policy will be under the new administration. And if the market actually believes, aha, corporate taxes are going to be cut, and if the market is moderately efficient, we should see action in the stock prices of uh, US stocks. This is what we found here. So there's two figures here. One labeled immediate, one long-term reaction. Concretely, what this means is what happened on November 9th. And this is what happened from November 9th to April 10th, 28th. So it's the 100-day mark of the uh, Trump presidency. The horizontal axis here shows the cash effective tax rate <coughs> in percent. So this is how much in cash did firms pay in taxes relative to their profits. Now you, so again, uh, these are so-called binned scatter plots. Uh, behind this are 3,000 stocks. But to make this visually more appealing, uh, a common method is to combine information. What, what it means is, just as a small methodological side note, for we form 20 groups of stocks according to the tax position. So the stocks with the lowest 20%, uh, the, the 5% of stocks with the lowest tax rate, the next 5%, next 5%, 20 groups. And then within each group, we look at what was the average stock return of that group of stocks, taking into account that they differ in industry and so on and so forth. What we find is a very strong positive association of 
the cash effective tax rate and the stock return, meaning <coughs> high-tax stocks benefited after the election. The effect is very sizable. A one standard deviation higher effective tax rate comes with about 70 basis points, a 0.7% higher stock return. That's a big thing. Uh, just if you can't make sense of those numbers, just trust me, it's a big number. The effect, the immediate uh, reaction of the stock market to this expected tax cut. The right-hand side picture is a little bit noisier. Remember, this is for 100 days. It's usually very difficult to predict or explain what happens over a 100-day horizon on the stock market. Right? Many things come in between. But still, despite that noise, there remains a nice and positive association of the cash position, of, uh, cash tax position of the company and the stock return, meaning high tax firms actually benefited after the election, which is precisely what you would expect president comes in with a good chance of passing a corporate tax cut because the Congress is also Republican. High tax firms would benefit relative to what had been expected to happen before. So that's I hope clear and, and also sort of reasonably uh, plausible that the market would react to that direction. Yeah. Just one I understand the yeah. sense of this. Yeah. So in a, like a diversified sort of economy, there are some firms that have a lower tax rate because they're like they're better at managing profitable, and they have a lot of depreciation expense and these kinds of things. Their yeah. tax rate is going to be lower. Yeah. And as a result, the effect on their returns as shareholders is diminished because presumably the yeah. benefits of tax cuts would go to higher tax. Rates. Yeah, and they have not much to gain. I mean, if, if you're already uh, optimizing taxes in a way that you're that you're way below the statutory tax rate. Then you're not going to gain much from a consequence of maybe a 21% statutory tax. That's right. By contrast, if for some reason you've been uh, rather uh, generous uh, towards uh, the government and fellow citizens in terms of uh, paying taxes, then you're going to benefit from a tax cut. Thanks. Now, this was the easiest one in some sense, taxes. Right? A harder one is how would internationally oriented firms respond. There are different predictions you could make about this. One is, well, if Trump gets elected, the domestic economy is going to do better. They're going to do infrastructure programs and so on and so forth. So this should be good for domestic firms. Also. Trade wars aren't good for internationally oriented firms. So even at the time when President Trump was elected, uh, the, the rhetoric was maybe of a type that internationally oriented firms would warrant. On the other hand, a switch to so-called territorial taxation would generally benefit internationally oriented firms. That's a little bit of a technical <coughs> term, but it's, it's, a, it's something that's kind of useful to, to know. Up until the tax reform that was just passed last December, the US has had a worldwide taxation regime. So 
companies had always to pay taxes in the US, no matter where the source of their income was. There was a plausible switch to territorial taxation anticipated with uh, Trump's election, which would benefit firms operating in other countries because most countries in the world have lower taxes than the US. Right? So it would be usually better uh, to pay taxes abroad rather than in the US. At the time, the US had a 35% corporate tax rate. You hardly pay 35% anywhere else. Yeah, I wanted to ask, like, does it hold even if you take any like, identification you can do in the US? Because from what I know, it's actually, they have like a high nominal rate, but in the end, you yeah. end up paying less than the world standard. Well, I, I think I'm mostly talking about the statutory tax rate here right now. So taking all the deductions in the US into account certainly would help you uh, bring that down. But then again, of course, uh, relative to Ireland, uh, Luxembourg, Switzerland, uh, you would have a hard time matching that. Still. So it was, it was ambivalent. It was ambivalent whether internationally oriented firms would benefit or not. What happened is internationally oriented firms actually lost quite dramatically. So this <coughs> is the same picture as before, but now the horizontal axis shows the percentage foreign revenues. Firms with large foreign position actually got hurt quite dramatically by this election, both in the short run and in the long run. That was maybe harder to figure out for the market, and in fact, the market took a little bit longer to price that in. The third topic that is of interest is in the environment. So um, beautiful coal uh, did benefit after the election. Nobody was surprised by that, right? On the day after the election, you'd see coal firms doing very well. But amazingly, and Richard has pointed to that already, within each industry, firms that are doing environmentally responsible stuff, in particular climate change uh, responsibility, actually they did better. Let me illustrate. This may be small to read, but I, I can talk to you. Uh, by the way, we yeah. have, if anybody wants it, we have copies of our slides. So. Yeah, of course, yes. yes. Mm. Uh, this, this may be small to read in the back, but let me just walk you through it here. This shows a range of industries sorted by the return on the first day, November 9th. This is the red bar, and then the white bar here is the return until the end of, through the end of the year. Okay, and so what you see is coal did really well on the day after the election, and also did reasonably well until the end of the year. Though over the rest of the Trump administration, hasn't done nearly as well. Steelworks have done well. Precious metals, railroad equipment. Then there's healthcare, fabricated products, petrol, natural gas. Many of these top performers on the first day are industries that are carbon intensive. So these are industries that emit a lot of CO2 or CO2 equivalent. So they would benefit from a rollback of the uh, climate change regulation, climate policy regulation. Incidentally, the same happened on the day after 
Scott Pruitt was nominated as the head of the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency. Scott Pruitt is a dedicated climate skeptic, I think it's fair to say, and uh, carbon-intensive stocks benefited from such an appointment. However, amazingly, firms with large climate responsibility did actually better. I have to explain what is climate responsibility. There are some data providers. One is MSCI KLD, the other is DJO Iris, there are some others that look at disclosures of firms, what they are doing to prepare for uh, climate change. This is not only in the polluting industry, it's also, for example, concerning banks. Some banks develop policies we are not going to lend to firms that have uh, poor environmental records, for example. That would also count as being responsible in that sense. So this covers all firms, not just dirty industries. It's within all firms. And what you see here is, these are since November 9th, the after the election, three days, five days, 10 days after the election. These are the returns of firms that are responsible according to this uh, uh, amendment, this, this data provider. We didn't collect those data ourselves. And what was really also surprising to us, these firms actually did better after the election, and they also did better, so these numbers are all positive, that's the main thing, right? Negative number would say they did worse, positive number means they did better after the election. After the election, these <laughs> firms tend to do better than their counterparts in the same industry, same tax position, and so on and so forth. After the election and after <coughs> domination. Now, what might be behind that? We have, a, we have a story for that, but I'm curious to hear. Well, presumably these, these firms have a cost of being environmentally responsible, and that's reducing their profits. Yes. So changing policy would mean they would not have to incur so many costs, and hence their profits would go up. Yes, Th that would, however, mean actually that those that did not engage in any of those activities would do better in the future. I mean, it's uh, well, they may have already exhausted their capabilities. They may okay, there. fine, yeah. That 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 if they have exhausted that, that's a possibility. Other thoughts? It's a very polarizing uh, issue, and there's certainly a, a, a sector of the population that would kind of double down on those. Um, just by virtue of their own yeah. political beliefs or their own aspirational beliefs. All right. And, uh, and they make it up the price. Okay. That I mean, it's not always the case that because you're responsible, you're not profitable. Yeah. So yeah. So, so that, that's, that's perfect. It, it could be in the short run, it's just uh, it's costs, you're, you're saving on them. It could be. I'll label it the way we do it. Doing good in bad times is, is sort of the right thing to do. You're substituting your personal preferences for uh, those that are now not uh, available anymore. If policy fails, then we gotta do something for it instead as investors. And finally, maybe it actually pays off, in particular, in the long run. Like you might think, well, now Trump is in office, that surely mean the rollback. A regulatory boomer. It may be that in a few years down the road, when the Democrats come back to power for eight years, then actually.
actually things may come back with a vengeance, so to speak, and you may be in a better position as a responsible firm that whatever it pays, it will pay to be a responsible firm. So those are different explanations. We don't have a final answer to that one yet, but we have thoughts uh, in that direction. For example, it turns out this effect that I'm showing you here is much more strongly pronounced in firms held predominantly by long-term investors. So we can figure out, in, yeah, that speaks for uh, yeah, your, your hypothesis right there, um, and you're getting credit uh, for it from, from, from the audience also for in that direction. Uh, we can look at firms are they being held by predominantly short-term investors or long-term investors. The short-termist ones, they didn't care that much. Actually, they put a negative amount, a premium on this. The long-term ones cared a lot for that. That speaks a little bit for this regulatory boomerang idea. This is Richard's terminology, by the way. I'm just uh, yeah, free-writing on, on that one. Um, so this is work in progress. We're trying to figure, figure out what's going on, but it's a pretty exciting regularity uh, that we see here. Okay, so I think I'm basically going to uh, conclude with a question, what, what can we learn as uh, investors from this? There's some other stuff you, you can find in the slides, for example, regarding what happened after the actual tax cut. It moved in the same direction as when the uh, election happened. So again, high tax firms benefited because it now became real, it wasn't just an anticipated tax cut, it actually happened, and so on and so forth. There were some details about operating loss carry forwards and technicalities, we can talk about those. Uh, We're all eager uh, to dive in there, I'm not gonna do it now. I do wanna conclude with the question of what can we learn, this was the actual tax cut thing, what can we learn from the uh, from these events more broadly? And how should you respond if you see such a big event happen? This is going to be slightly anticlimactic because we don't have the perfect answer. If it, if it were that easy, uh, then, then maybe we would not help you. Instead <laughs> 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 of making money, it would then uh, be too alluring, although we are academics and we can we can't keep our mouths shut when we, when we see something that's interesting. Uh, but, but still, it, it turns out it's not that easy. Let me illustrate that uh, with the final graph here. Um, bear with me with the terminology. Sometimes one has to sort of keep digging to, to understand uh, what, what's going on here. This horizontal axis here plots something called the difference in the spread ratio. Sounds awfully complicated. It's not. It's just comparing from one day to the next how much action was there in the market. How much did the market reprice? Right? So remember this graph that uh, Richard showed at the very beginning before the election, the calm, and then there was this spike up of the spread ratio, this interquartile range that Richard described. A big move here means big surprise in the market. And a big move in that direction in the negative means calming down of the market. Alright, so that's what this is on this horizontal axis. On the vertical axis, we plot this is the last century of data. We again would summarize in these nice 
plot was labeled here as the absolute rank order correlation. Again, it sounds complicated, but it's not really. It just says how much do returns from one day after this big event on the horizontal axis, how much do returns from one day predict returns on the next day? Unfortunately, the key word here is absolute. So if, if I omitted the absolute word here, it would say, aha, every day something big happens in the market. The next day, the returns of the stocks that did well on one day will again be higher. And so we would all have to get slightly trumpet. Big event, and then from one day to the next, big momentum. So every time such a big event happens in the future, you would just buy staples on the again, right on the second on the second day. Unfortunately, that's not how it works. Sometimes there is big reversal. So sometimes, precisely after a big market move, everybody the next day decides, no, that was the false direction. Let's let's run the other way again. In absolute terms, absolute sign means removing the negative sign. In absolute terms, we see either after a big event, large momentum, so same thing happening again, or large reversal going in the exactly opposite direction. Unfortunately, at this point, we can only say that information is not all absorbed at once. So <coughs> if it were that information is all absorbed at once, it would just mean there's always a flat line, no matter what happened on the previous day. That's not what happens. That's where we stand. Unfortunately, right now, I can't yet tell you how to make money out of this, but that's also what's not the purpose. I think only two people came here to make money, right? Everybody, everybody else is, is sort of intellectually curious. More, more curious than that. All right, so I'll hand it over to, to Richard for um, the conclusions. Um, okay, first I just want to clarify one thing. Um, when we said during this talk, or mostly Alex said during the talk, these stocks did worse. We don't necessarily mean that they went down. We meant that they did worse yeah. relative to the market. These are all abnormal returns. So the stock market goes up 3% and your stock goes up 2%, you had a 1% negative abnormal return. So that was just sort of a clarification. Wait, um, I've been told in a talk you're supposed to say what you're going to say, then you're supposed to say it, then you're supposed to tell people what you did say. <laughs> so I'm supposed to say what we did say. So um, taxes, trading, environmental responsibility issues are an important component of firm value. Um, and I think for those of you, I don't know how many of you are interested in the environment, but I think it's very interesting that environmental responsibility gets priced. We all know there are socially oriented investment funds. And it may be that 5% you know, of investors are interested in this. But it turns out that at least for our sample and our study, that whoever is interested in this actually managed to move the stock market. So I'm a cynic who's just interested in making money and sort of said, ah, I'm not going to be a sucker like these guys who are paying extra in terms of getting a lower expected return going forward by owning an environmental stock. I would not, you know, I'm, I'm not the, what's called the marginal investor guy who determines where the stock is. So this movement is real and important. I guess you're not surprised about the taxes um, in trade, but they all affect firm values. 
Um, and these aggregate market moves are linked to policies in these areas. The second conclusion. Um, as you may remember, the title of our talk was Goldilocks. I was surprised. Alex is from Austria. He had never heard the story Goldilocks before he got here. Before I got here, not before this talk. Not before this, he heard it when he got to the United States. I don't know if those of you who are, had you heard of Goldilocks? The story yes, but I don't get the connection. You don't get the connection, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sebastian was my student and he was always asking hard questions. Okay, the connection is as follows. Goldilocks wanders into this um, cottage and she goes to the first bed. She lies down in the bed and she says, too hard. And she goes to the second bed and she says, too soft. And then she goes to the third bed and says, just right. Okay. So what we're sort of saying is there are situations where the stock market in a panic overreacts. And that's what happened, for example, at the beginning of election night. Everybody was rushing in this direction. That's overreaction. And then there are times, and that was a lot of our stories, there are times when the market underreacts. Otherwise, it's kind of hard to get the information right. You may even think that this stock is overpriced, but you don't know how much it's overpriced. So you sell it, but you would have sold even more if you would really know. And the stock market underreacts. And then ultimately, at least we showed in the Trump election, after 10 days, it got it right. So that was the Goldilocks type of notion. So we overreacted, we underreacted, but ultimately over time we got it um, correct. Um, by the way, for those of you who are just interested in the stock market in general, um, some of my friends who teach finance here are market timers. They think that they can tell when the stock market is too high, they think they can tell when the stock market is too low. Um, I believe those people spend an awful lot of time and don't make an awful lot of money. I think that market timing is almost impossible. Indeed, if you looked at people who were writing about the stock market on January 1st, 2017, they also said, oh, the stock market is fully valued. We can't expect to earn very much. And it was one of the uh, best years in recent memory. So if you had said, looking, for example, at historical price earnings ratios, um, what you should do um, you should have sold, and you would have lost mightily. Okay. Then there's the notion of how about individual stocks? And most people seem to think that individual stocks are pretty well-priced. So we know that the stock market is mispriced overall in aggregate. The trouble is, is that it can be mispriced for a long period of time. Warren Buffett, who arguably America's, he certainly was, successful, famous investor. There may be more successful investors. But Warren Buffett completely missed um, the high-tech bubble in the late 1990s. What he should have done is he should have bought in 1995. He should have sold in you know, the beginning of the year 2000, and he would have made a fortune. Now, of course, Warren Buffett could sort of say, I missed the upswing, I missed the downswing. I didn't know when the downswing was coming, so maybe I did the, you know, the right sort of notion. But our whole argument here is how did the pricing of individual stocks um, behave um, and we showed how information generally got incorporated and our I think a big theme is 
the information was easy to come by, it got incorporated quickly. The information was hard to come by, it got incorporated more slowly. And then we have the just right effects. Um, individual stocks move in the right direction. Price movements converge. That's pretty uh, good. These are just background papers that um, you know Alex and I and um, some other friends in Zurich um, have written. Um, and I thank you for your attention. And we're happy to take a few comments or questions. Yes, sir? No, behind you, Elizabeth. I'm not going to speculate on what President Trump thought. Um, I should tell you that I believe that President Trump's approach to negotiation is basically, I'm going to beat you up in a back alley. Okay? <laughs> now, what are you going to agree to? And then eventually I agree not to beat you up in a back alley. And he thinks, and if you read his uh, you know, books on the secrets of being a great negotiator, that he says that that's his approach. Howard Rafa would phrase that as anchor high. I'm trying to sell you this clicker. The clicker is worth about $25. I'd sort of say, why don't you give me $100? And that's what Howard Rafa would tell you to do. So Howard Rafa, who unfortunately is no longer, he was a great professor here, but he would, would say it more graciously than President Trump. But it was basically the same approach. And Trump might have said, look, it's worthwhile to say this about tariffs because that's going to make you know, other countries more reasonable about tariffs. And I don't know if you remember, but the day after um, Trump announced $60 billion in tariffs on China, China uh, responded by saying, we're going to impose tariffs on $3 billion worth of U.S. goods, a trivial percentage of our GMP. And what they're basically, I believe what China was basically saying is, look, we don't want a trade war. You know, you uh, threatened to beat me up in the back alley. I'm going to tap you on the shoulder. Let's back away from this particular, you know, sort of situation. And it sort of seems as though we backed away. And, you know, I'm sure that President Trump would have been happy to have the stock market go down if he thought it was subsequently going to go up. Um, I'm not a macroeconomist, but I think that most people believe that U.S. revenues will be um, going down. Um, our expenditures um, under our expenditures never really go down. I mean, we've elected one president after another, conservative presidents, liberal presidents. Everybody says I'm going to balance the budget. Um, Clinton did it for a little while, but it's, that's that's not our that's not our religion here in the United States. We like we like deficits, not as much as some other countries, but we like deficits because it's always good to spend money. At least it's good for your 
<coughs> popularity, and I'm making a prediction, even though I'm not a macroeconomist, that come 2020, the first part of 2020, uh, the size of our deficit will balloon because presidents always spend more in the year before an election. Other comments or questions? Yes, sir? Uh, in the uh, movement of the market right around the 9th and 10th, this may be a naive question, but do you think that flash trading or program trading had anything to do with that? I'm sure program trading had something to do with it. It's such a major portion of the American stock market um, at the present time that it's inconceivable that it didn't uh, amplify, amplify any movement in one direction or another. And you can make, as a good flash trader, you can make money even if the market's going in the other direction because you can reverse, you know, more uh, quickly in time. Uh, Citadel, which is a, you know, fancy firm in uh, Chicago, claims that it's now responsible for something like, you know, more than 20% of the trading on the U.S. stock markets. I mean, you know, it's just un unbelievable what they do. Now they're, you know, they may be trading for, you know, 45 seconds, um, what they do. And the same thing is true with a company called um, Renaissance Technologies, which is, um, so but it's still there's, a, there's, a lot, there's a lot of that going on. But of course, they're trying to guess which way you and I and everybody else is going to be trading, including, you know, I merely buy a mutual fund, but the mutual fund has to go buy stock because they don't like to be short. And the thing is, uh, even, even if you're a very sophisticated trader, so, so one is just trading technically on short, uh, short movements. That I'm sure was going on a lot. But uh, one can ask the question, well, with all this technology, why didn't uh, firms converge more quickly to the right price in terms of tax cut or whatever. Uh, the thing is that it was not so clear what the right level was in the, in the first place because to figure out the consequences of an anticipated tax cut, you have to know how big it is. You have to take a stance on how big it is, how long it's going to last, and so on and so forth. Program training, so training. They don't care. I mean, Jim Simons doesn't care uh, well, at all. Well, there, there are algorithms that take that exactly into account. So it's not I, just technology. I suspect that Renaissance Technologies has um, 50 mathematicians for every macroeconomist on staff. And that's basically who they hire. I don't think they have any economists. They must have a macroeconomist just for respectability. Uh, maybe they do. I don't know that they do, but I just know they hire, mostly they hire physicists and mathematicians and the like. Okay. Well, last question. Thank you. Overconfident. It's a nicer word. It's a nicer word. Right. So, um, but it could be just simply the herd mentality that they're following each other, so they stay in the same range. The herd. I mean, herd. You can't uh, dismiss herd mentality. I believe that's the reason that the stock market did so well in 2017. It's doing well. I think it's going to do well. What do you think? I think it's going to do well. And everybody went off and it did well. <laughs> Anyhow, thank you all for coming. Um, if you want our slides, they're here in the front.
we got through about 65% of our slides. So the other 35% are the really good slides. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.